When I was moving through my first year as a mother, her words and perspectives offered me a harbor of compassion to rest in. Once I had decided to birth this podcast, she was one of the first people I added to my list of women who I wanted to interview for Revillagers. Beth Berry is a coach, teacher, retreat facilitator, mother of four daughters, and author of Motherwelt. A revolutionary at heart, she helps mothers to get more of what they want and need to feel fulfilled and empowered despite the odds. She believes that self-aware, self-compassionate, well-supported mothers who know themselves to be worthy of pleasure and joy-filled lives are powerful beyond measure and essential to the healing of the world. I really love this conversation with Beth and I hope you enjoy it too. Welcome to the show, Beth. I'm so happy and honored to have you here. Thank you, Sarah. I'm really happy to be here too and honored as well. So I want to kick off this show with basically going back to how everything started for you as a mother. How did you embark on the journey of motherhood and how did that lead you to where you are today? Um, so... I became a mother quite early. I was a rebellious teen and a mother by 17. And um, I was, it was such a natural fit for me right away. My instincts kicked in early when I was pregnant. I wasn't planning to have a baby or anything like that, but I um, so quickly identified with um, this maternal role. And felt this sense of purpose. And um, that's, I think, so much of what I'd been looking for in my rebellion anyway. So I had this uh, instant sense that motherhood was uh, immensely important. And it gave me direction in my life that I really needed. So I was all in (laughs) right from the start. And uh, so I lived with my parents, with my daughter for the first couple of years. And that was actually this unique and uniquely beautiful time of parenting for me. I've been a mother now for 20, almost 29 years. And um, those were some of the most supportive uh, resourced years because we, I think we were living as close to the way we're meant to be living as, as I have since, you know, um, so it was my my parents and my two sisters and everybody was just in love with this baby and so all hands on deck and no it was never a burden for anyone people were like you know i needed to take a shower or go to the gym or go to work or go to school and more than enough help and support and and love and so that was a really interesting way to start off the journey so i kind of had that sense of a village from the start And then when I moved out and, uh, and then it was just she and I in a little apartment and I kind of lived in a, uh, I was in college and met a lot of friends. I had a lot of support then as well, because we were all walkable and bikeable to each other's houses. And so it just felt like we had this little, little community. 
Um, and then the hardest part was when I then got married <laughs> and had, you know, my second child and then third and then fourth with my husband in the traditional single family household setup. That was the hardest by far. It was easier as a single mom uh for me for for a number of different reasons but yeah that that was my the beginnings for me and uh yeah so i had all four of my daughters by the time i was 30 wow you mentioned what a few of those like reasons were why it was harder for you in while being in a relationship in comparison mm -hmm. to when you were living with your parents yeah um I think the biggest one was really, and I didn't have language for this back then, but um, there was uh, a real disparity in, in um, the division of labor. Hmm. There was a very uh, strong sense that, I mean, I the, the thing is that I contributed to that. And I think this is one thing that <clears throat> isn't talked about enough, that my internalized you know, conditioning, but also, excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, but also I had this, I had this strong maternal instinct and also a very strong nesting instinct and homemaking instinct. And I wanted to do those things and I, I loved those things. But what I didn't realize was that the more of those things I did and the assuming that role so completely sort of let my husband off the hook uh, in a way that I didn't realize I was setting myself up. <laughs> I didn't understand that then by the time more and more kids came and more and more years into the marriage where I was like, wait a minute, like uh, I can't, you know, feeling like the weight of the world on me and not really understanding why. Um, and it wasn't that he wasn't working hard. He was, uh, but for him, he would go to work, work hard, come home, be done working. And then, <laughs> you know, my, my work didn't end. I didn't, didn't um, get breaks from it. Uh, so that was a big thing. And then just, just having, yeah, having more than one person who's tracking the needs of kids and who's, who's really mindful. And like, my mom was just very competent as a household manager, as a, as a <clears throat> emotional manager, you know, somebody who's paying attention and yeah, in general, I think living with, with another mother is, <laughs> it's really where it's at. Yeah, I understand. So how did that embark the journey that you're on today, supporting mothers through the various stages of motherhood. Yeah. So I I hit rock bottom when just not not long after my fourth daughter was born and um I was super idealistic and trying so hard to provide them this idyllic uh childhood experience. Really I just wanted them to have the basics of uh nature connection and um and wholesome meals and uh, in general, uh, what I thought was the bare minimum in terms of like, <laughs> you know, a healthy childhood, but just that bare minimum was 
um, causing so much overfunctioning for me uh, that I was burning out and and I didn't I didn't realize it was because it's sort of a setup um, this this way that we're raising kids uh, but from that point when I realized that if something didn't change all my efforts wouldn't matter much because they were going to look back and remember this really miserable mother. Um, and I realized that I, I had to do, start doing some things for myself because at that point I was not, I wasn't self-sacrificing completely feeling like that's what, that's how you uh, show your commitment. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't need anything. I'll just focus on everyone else's needs. So I started prioritizing myself guiltily at the time um but i could feel the life force coming back i could feel myself coming back alive in those times that i would uh get away and i, I joined a, a local knitting group and i would go once a week to knitting on tuesday nights and then i extended that into uh trying to get some nature connection and some exercise so i joined a, a rowing club so I, every tuesday from like 3 p.m. through bedtime, I was gone. And it was transformative. It was completely the the turning point of my life because I started being able to not only start meeting some of my own needs, but seeing myself outside of mother and homemaker and wife, which was so essential to me reclaim, reclaiming a sense of self. And then since then... You know, I started, I, we moved the family to Mexico for four years and uh, I was able to then start really unpacking how I got into this mess. I had finally had more space and time to think about what was, what was different and, um, or what was going on. And, uh, and in that time in Mexico, I started writing and then that, and blogging, and then that writing and blogging turned into uh, coaching and then the coaching evolved into group coaching and then year-long programs and and everything that's come since and my book and that kind of thing so I it's it's my greatest passion is you know the liberation of mothers and um and changing this narrative that is so strong in the culture right now which is there must be something wrong with me and that's why this is so hard mm. instead of Look, we need to be looking at these systems and structures and norms and narratives that are keeping us uh, stuck and feeling like no matter how much we do, it'll never be enough. Yeah, indeed. I think from one perspective that women are becoming more and more aware of that as as they embark on the journey of motherhood. However, the challenging part can be for the partners to realize that they are a part of this and mm -hmm. how to go about to changing the dynamics in the home to sharing this the labor the invincible labor the mental the emotional and everything that comes with parenting yeah absolutely and that's a, a slow and sometimes painful process depending on largely on how these men are raised yeah you know, and so 
this is a big sticky point that I see in so many of the lives of my clients. And that is that we're both trying to get our partners to buy in on a different way. But we also realize that they're doing better than their fathers, most of them. But if they don't do even better, we're going to keep repeating this in these, these, this next generation is being modeled right now, how this should go. And so there's this sense of urgency Mm -hmm. that I, that I feel in, you know, and that I've, that I've witnessed in so many women and that I felt myself that, that we can't change this system until we we have more buy-in from men. We really need them. And, um, but there's an interesting uh, issue, which is that so often our approach when it comes to trying to get them on board is having the opposite effect. Mm. It's bringing up, it's stirring up a lot of shame in men. And shame is like their kryptonite. They can't deal with shame well. No one deals with shame well, but men in particular are especially sensitive to shame. And so it's the quickest way to shut them down. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet we don't want to have to tiptoe around and find all the perfect ways to say the things. We just want them to step up. Indeed. So how would you say or recommend a person who is facing this to to embark on bringing the conversation forward or moving the needle forward um one one thing is getting going a little deeper into the shame piece uh, and this is something that i read in a book called how to improve your marriage without talking about it oh and <laughs> interesting title <laughs> the book at one back in the day when I was married and Googling you know, like my partner doesn't want to talk about <laughs> found this book. Anyway, it's a great book, all kinds of good ideas. But one, one concept that really stuck with me is that they talk about how in general, this is a generalization, women's uh, greatest vulnerability is around fear and especially fear of disconnection. And so we, we when we're feeling disconnected from our loved ones we will do all kinds of things including not so healthy things to get back into a feeling of connection Mm -hmm. Um, because it's so uncomfortable in our bodies we just don't we don't have the skills most of us until we realize this and start building these skills we don't have the skills to be able to endure those feelings uh and the equivalent for men is shame when they feel like i'm not good enough I'm not doing enough. Uh, my my partner is not happy with me. That feeling in their body is as intense as ours. That feeling in our body when we're disconnected from from our loved ones. And so, just realizing this difference, I think, can and help helping our partners to see this as well can help each of us to be more. Um, mindful in our conversations about the way that we go about uh, because it's a, it's a self-perpetuating cycle when um, if let's say, you know, he's scrolling on his phone and we're trying to talk to him and he's not listening and we're feeling disconnected. 
And so we say something that's like, you're just, you're never even around. You're never even present. And then he starts feeling ashamed and then he wants to pull away even more. So the disconnected shame is like in this dance in a lot of relationships. That's not, it's not fun for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that the unfortunate and sad truth is that some men, when nudged enough, and in enough ways we'll get it enough to be like oh yeah this is a thing i need to actually i'm going to take this on this is not fun for me it's just it's adding more to my plate and i this is really hard because i'm changing all, but they're 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 um they have uh enough emotional maturity i'm going to say to be able to uh take it on as as a growth journey there are other men who are just not there and no matter how much you say and how well you say it they're not going to get there and you've got to decide is this a relationship that that is uh, aligned enough for me um and more and more we're finding that this (laughs) is sort of a litmus test it's it's sort of unfortunately it takes often having the kid first or before you're like, Oh, wow, this is way um, more intense than I expected it to be. Or he really doesn't get it, or he's really unwilling to change. Mm. Uh, But I, but I do see that this is like at the heart of why a lot of relationships these days are not working because we're saying you need to step up. We need more equity in the household. Um, And I, and and he's saying i'm doing better than my father and you're always down, you know down my throat about something and um it's the willingness to to actually self reflect and look at the bigger picture too and see patriarchy and its damaging effects on men as well oh yeah for sure um and the interesting part is that well at the end of the day patriarchy is serving men yeah. It's a privilege for them. So staying put in their in that box and doing things that they have been doing is comfortable, whereas the burden falls on the women. Yeah. And yet there are so many ways that patriarchy also hurts men. And I think if we could start to help them see this, yeah. That can be part of what 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 tips the, you know, moves the needle. Um because the truth is that it's a real shame that men, most men don't have access to the full range of human emotions. You know, they don't feel like they can be vulnerable, that they can f- express their sadness or their fear. That, I mean, that's really unfortunate. I mean, that means that there's only, and, and that they're afraid of intimacy, that, that there's only so far they can go into the richness of life. And so we, that I think needs to be spoken about more that patriarchy is hurting. Patriarchy does not care about men. No, it dehumanizes them. Yeah, exactly. All of these systems of oppression are about dehumanization and power. They're not about, you know, it's not like patriarchy is going to make the lives of, of men better. Actually, it, it doesn't. It, 
privileges them in some ways and in many other ways it's it's hurting them the the cost is really great yeah i think another interesting aspect is that and this is for just from my own observation that women who become mothers not only end up mothering the child or their, their children but also their partner is this something that you have noticed in your work Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And it's like the least sexy thing ever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that is, you know, a lot of, I think, what men have been conditioned to see as um, desirable in a partnership is to be tended to like that. They, th on the one hand, they also don't want to be told what to do, but they want to be nurtured. Yeah. in that way um uh yeah it's a it's a huge one it's a really really big issue i wonder if it has to do well obviously it has to do with their own upbringing the lack of inner like inner nurturing and inner connection to their own feminine aspects their divine feminine aspects and I'm assuming like just like replacing that instead of having that from within sourcing that from without. Yes. Yeah, I do think that that's that's true. Um whenever there are parts of ourselves that we've, you know, rejected or never uh acknowledged the presence of or that we're actively denying, we also are going to be threatened by them and other people. Mm. So if their own inner feminine qualities um, or, or, you know, emotions that men are conditioned not to feel, if all of that is being uh, exiled within themselves, by themselves, even unconsciously, and then we come in with the vulnerability or the emotional attunement or whatever. They both need it and reject it. So it creates this really sticky, confusing uh, situation for for both people in the partnership. It's fascinating, really. It is. So... Motherhood, you kind of can say that motherhood um, and the birth, just the process of the birth is, I've often heard that it's a rite of passage. Yet in our culture, it's not something that we acknowledge as a rite or celebrate as a rite or are held in. Mm -hmm. um at least here in sweden birth is very medicalized and the whole and americanized i would say like baby showers are be becoming more and more popular and now with social media like these gender reveal parties for so to say but and there's so much focus on the baby and this new life which is obviously beautiful mm 
but there is not a focus on the mother. And something that I'm finding quite fascinating, both through my own personal journey and also observing others, is that, you know, back in the days we had elders, we had wise ones who would hold space and share the knowledge or pass the knowledge. But now we're so isolated. And not only isolated, but it feels like people are so busy with their own lives that they don't really focus on holding that space for others, for example. Was this something that you've reflected on or noticed in as as well? Absolutely. Yeah. So the the absence of elders is another really massive <laughs> issue. Um and one that I think many people feel that absence you start to feel it more so when you're going through a rite of passage that is not being marked but I mean I remember the feeling very young uh, of like this is the most spectacular thing that's ever happened in my life and this feeling like where is the whole community coming to celebrate and not by bringing me stuff, but by ushering me into this new version of myself. And that was evident to me really young that there was a gap there. There's something missing. Um, And, and yes, by focusing all the attention on the baby and the stuff that the baby supposedly needs or that that is needed to to have a new baby um we invisibilize the mother right from the beginning we invisibilize the importance of motherhood this as a rite of passage we invisibilize her needs uh and and this incredible need for support during one of if not the most vulnerable season of her life um where not only is her body going through this massive shift but her role (laughs) just changed so much uh and and then she's the the narrative of the overculture is that you bounce back quickly you revert back actually to the maiden, you know, like you're not even, there's not even an encouragement to celebrate that you've come into a fuller version of yourself. In fact, you should do everything you can to, to hold on tight to those qualities that were yours as a maiden. And, and this creates this cognitive dissonance in the mother right away. Um, And then on top of all of that, we've got this like medicalized model of birth and this um, sort of mechanized model of motherhood, uh, early motherhood, that is completely um, disregarding the fact that this is a wild time of life. This is a time when uh, I think of it as um this is this is something that i learned from um britta bushnell um who uh 
is talks a lot about um, the support of mothers postpartum. Um, she she does brilliant work. She talks about looking at uh, Artemis and Apollo and and using using these the Artemisian energy and the Apollonian energy to better understand what's going on for us. And I find it to be really, really helpful and fascinating. So in short, um, Apollo is the god of uh, order and structure and time and uh, and and culture and th- this uh, you know linear thinking and um, Artemis is the goddess of the wild. She's the goddess of death and birth and uh, nature and decay and and um, <clears throat> all things wild and uh untamable and so birth in and the 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 months after birth are artemisian they're wild they can't be tamed they're 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 taking us into parts of our psyche and our spirits that we've never been it's this amazing opportunity for spiritual growth for for growth in every possible level if we're being held and and we're not it's not being honored in fact we're trying to make that that birth and the time leading you know up to birth and following birth we're trying to make them apollonian like the rest of the culture the vast amounts of the current culture in most of the world is apollonian we're we're trying to get rid of the artemisian because it's not tidy it's not orderly it's not organized you can't control it and um so we women because we are connected intuitively instinctively naturally to the artemisian energy we, we feel it but we have no idea what it is we have no idea what to do with it and no one is naming it yeah. and so we feel completely alone in this like primal raw uh, instinctual desire to be you know um connected to our baby to be like the 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 things that I think people can understand this baby comes out and you smell it and it's the most delicious smell you I mean it's the most intoxicating thing that's primal you know like this baby you will now fiercely protect for the rest of your life you know like this like to really get in touch with those that what's so primitive and primal about it is so important but we're just erasing all of that we're just moving moving through it and making it about the stuff and making it about the efficiency um and you're lucky if you get a few meals made for you before you have to get back to it and take care of it all yourself again um and it's tragic it's absolutely tragic and then that's the set that that's the foundation of motherhood and then from there so you're invisibilized and unsupported right from the start and then from there it just can compounds yeah no wonder so many mothers burn out or have going to depression exactly and and you know postpartum depression and anxiety are at an all-time high and um and when you look at what a mother really needs, the, the needs are are really fundamental and basic. They're not complex. <laughs> she needs uh, 
nurturance. She needs warmth. She needs, uh, you know, warming foods. She needs to not have to go out, leave her home for a while while she, you know, recovers. Um, she needs quiet. Uh, it's just, it's really, she just needs a healing womb herself. Um, and for someone else to be holding those Apollonian riverbanks so she can be fully in her Artemisian. It's really fascinating. Personally, I have my second postpartum in a month. I'm due (laughs) soon (laughs) and haven't gone through a postpartum which I mean I don't know if a person can really prepare for how one is going to feel after giving birth because it's such a initiation and even though how much you read or study nothing will compare to the experience of it and it's not about having a positive or traumatic birth per se. It's overwhelming. It's life-changing. Um, something that I found with myself was that although I consider myself being an aware person was that these subconscious beliefs kicked in for me and the over-functioning kicked in for me. And although I was a new mom and I had set aside 40 days to be in my cocoon, but still in my cocoon, I was over-functioning. I was still trying to do the work. I was still trying to be everything for everyone. But in the in the doing of such, I was depleting myself. I was in my... And here's another thing that I felt that nobody talks about. There's all this emphasis on the hormones but nobody talks about really what does this mean in terms of like affecting your nervous system yeah and my nervous system was jacked up i was on fight or flight the majority of the time not understanding what was wrong with me and these are such important components that i feel is being missed and there's such a focus on what you should buy (laughs) what kind of pads you should have and not have what crib you should have and not have and none of that matters when you have a mom that's utterly depleted who you know can't really function or think clearly for herself Yeah. And I think what ends up happening is that most mothers postpartum are in fight or flight Mm -hmm. or freeze and or fawn through the whole, you know, all, all of the, the trauma responses are, are coming online. But what she's told is the way to handle, like that's not being called any of that, of course, She's just feeling like a failure. What's wrong with me right from the beginning? And so then she's ta- taught and shown everywhere that you cope through consuming. Mm. <laughs> what do you do? You cope. How do you cope? You buy shit. Mm. 
and there's lots of stuff to buy and super alluring and it's beautiful and it like paints this picture of how serene your life will be when you have the the perfect organic everything you know to put your your baby's room together and then you know and and so we're we're going for we're really susceptible in that time of life to those messages Mm. because we're super vulnerable and we're like yeah i need my life to feel like that and i'm not seeing it anywhere else but on the images of these (laughs) whatever uh in these advertisements and so we consume because what what other choice do we really have it's not like we can look around and find that the village is just right there ready to meet us Mm-mm. and if we don't have language for this stuff and we don't understand what's really going on with us and we're sleep deprived you know there's this relationship that i think so many mothers uh, people need to understand between our needs and our values that it's really hard to live our life from our values when we have a lot of unmet needs. Mm-hmm. And a, a really simple example of this that everyone can relate to is when you're sleep deprived, it's hard to be patient. It's hard to be access creativity. Um, or another example is under normal everyday circumstances, most of us, most people who are listening to this, aren't stealing food to feed their families. That's not the way we're getting food. But if you're, if there's no food to be had and your children are starving, you will. Yeah. You'll steal. Because the needs come first. Mm-hmm. So when we think about why am I not you know, when we go into this place of like feeling ashamed of how we're showing up as mothers and not uh, parenting or living from our, our deeper values, we've, I think we immediately need to look at our unmet needs, figure out what those are, figure out um, how we can get creative and better meeting them. And also grieve the fact that we're having even figure this shit out when we're postpartum. <laughs> this is not the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. I find it that in general, women have a hard, and not only women, people in general have a hard time understanding what their needs are and honoring them. Because I think, well, due to the overculture, of course, and the whole notion of if I'm tending to myself, I'm being selfish and nobody wants to be selfish especially women, we have this programming of wanting to be the good girl, the good girl syndrome kicks in. And even though if we see, for example, our partners chip in a bit, after a point, we will start to feel guilty because we are not, because it's our time to rest and their time, for example, to chip in more. But still that mechanism kicks in, that feeling kicks in. And that can be such a, tricky terrain to navigate through especially because if um as the mother you're also not bringing in income yeah it's we have this association we've made again this is all conditioning that 
the people who bring in the money are the ones who are worthy of getting their needs met. <laughs> and that the work, the unpaid work of caring for uh, for children, for caring for the home, care work in general that's unpaid is not considered work. So you have those two things working together yeah. uh, and creating in this, creating these feelings that you're talking about that um, we can hardly sit down for to rest for a few minutes before the guilt kicks in. Yeah. And it's not because we're not worthy of rest. It's because it's a number of things. It's the things I just mentioned, but it's also our, um, our instinct to, to, as caretakers, we actually really deeply care and that's being exploited. So how does one go about to change change that and change their inner landscape and how they go about navigating that? So this is the work that I do with people. Um, and it's, frankly, it's a years long healing journey. That's what it is. And I, you know, I don't do quick fixes. That's not how this work goes, you know. Um, I think there are things we can quickly, uh, insights that we can take in or have that can change the way we see things. But the the actual work of changing this stuff, it's a healing journey. It's it's deconstruction work largely. We're we're trying to look at all of the things in in our inner landscape that are <clears throat> like how has our inner landscape been colonized. And that's essentially what this is, is decolonization work. We're trying to like weed out all of the things that have been toxified in our inner landscape. Mm. Um, And and then eventually, um, once we've gone through sort of story by story and um, coping strategy by coping strategy, then starting to courageously and creatively put new try new things try different ways of coping that are more aligned for us that are more uh honoring of us as humans and and not superhuman you know um and yeah that we really start to reflect on you know what what are some of these core needs that I have and what happens when they're not met and where did I learn that it was unacceptable to have these needs either in my family of origin or in the from the the over culture and all of this the stories that we've been absorbing our whole lives um and <clears throat> what big T and little T traumas am I responding from? What am I afraid of? You know, this is a tender uh, work that takes time and takes self-compassion and, and, and building self-compassion in and of itself. Yeah. Big one. And I'm recognizing that we are, you know, when, 
this message from the overculture that celebrates mothers for being superhuman, I think is super damaging. Oh, it's so toxic. So toxic. Um, because it's basically saying that we uh, are able to do more than the rest of the world and that we have less needs. And neither of those is true. <laughs> so it's like a double whammy. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Are you noticing a change in the various generations that you're working with? I am. I am noticing changes. Um, it's very exciting to see, you know, my daughters are now 16 to 29. And their generation um, has so much more language for this stuff. They're going to go into their own motherhood journey much better equipped with understanding of of these um, um, gender imbalances and um, having language. Uh, and having a greater sense of, I think it's kind of interesting because this, the generation, um, younger generations, I think have a bit more entitlement, which can be problematic on the one hand, but on the other hand, they're actually saying, no, I don't want that. I'm not putting up with that. That's not, no, <laughs> you know? So I think that is a really beautiful thing that there's a greater sense of like, I don't have to put up with that. That's not acceptable. Um, and I, that took me a long time to access those voices within myself that were like, this is not okay. Like I could not get those words to come out of my mouth for a long time. So I do feel encouraged by that. I, that that and then uh, in the same breath i do feel um <sighs> anxious about the technology dependence and how it seems to be having the effect of um keeping younger people from building uh, skills around connection and vulnerability. Mm. So we'll see how all that plays out. <laughs> <laughs> What's your prediction? Uh, I, I just think that I think my prediction is that there's going to be a point at which we see these technologies as needing really a lot of regulation you know, that we really can't just be putting iPads in the hands of two-year-olds and um, hoping for the best. <laughs> like, I just, I think that when the research catches up, you know, just like with cigarettes, I think we're going to start to see, like, what what's happening to our brains, not all of us, you know, especially children, but all of us, what is happening to our brains? And that that hopefully we can not feel like we have to be the ones fighting these bad battles alone in our single family households against technology and with the kids and 
everything, but that we could have more like, you know, regulations um, that keep us from having to fight so many of these battles. Um, and just that there'll be more and more data that helps us to see, wow, like that's actually not what I want. I don't, I don't want that to happen to my brain <laughs> and that there may be a bit more, uh, um, motivation then for us to, uh, be regulating these things for ourselves mm. and, and, um, more mindful about our usage though. It's really tough because they're, they're made to be addictive. Oh yeah, they're designed to be addictive. Um, I feel like the studies are already there. A big question is whether we want to partake in them and how these devices are serving ourselves. From one perspective, I do understand that it's so easy when you're tired and to give a device to a child. And you know, TVs back in the days when I was a when I was younger, that was a whole other technology. Yeah. The screen, the retina was completely different. And if you read the pattern behind like the design of the, the screens today and what they're designed to do with the brain versus then, they're also two different things, which is scary. And simultaneously, at least here in Sweden, not only are they encouraging technology on, on students from a young age, but also even in kindergarten. I don't know how many times I pass by kindergartens or nurseries and I see children in the arch room Here's the, par the paradox of like all of this, sitting in front of a screen. And yeah. for me, it's mind boggling because there's already a lot of research that is showing that it's interconnected with autism. As adults, we're already noticing that it is affecting ourselves and our ability to connect with one another. And it's dehumanizing us because if you go and sit on a bus or a train, majority of people are sitting like this. I remember like the first time I think I took my son on a train ride and he's super social and he was so excited to just like connect and talk to someone and have somebody looking at him. And everywhere he was looking, people were looking down. And as soon as someone gave him eye contact, he lit up and started like trying to connect with that person. So I hear you. I think, however, the studies are there. A big question is, uh, I think it's going to take a long time before it gets regulated because it's serving serving an agenda as well, right? Fortunately, I think that is true. And <clears throat> I think that I want to be sure that I am clear that I in no way mean to 
shame mothers who are using these technologies because I get it. I, and, and in the absence of the village, what else? I mean, this is partly how mothers are getting their needs met. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Even the most basic needs of using the bathroom or taking a shower is sometimes that's the safest thing is to give them a screen while we're getting our very basic needs met. Yeah. So there's no shame in that at all. Um, uh, and I think we need to understand as well how part of the overwhelm that we struggle with as mothers is that we're constantly trying to figure out this calculus of like, okay, um, I don't want my kids to be screen addicted. I don't want all of these, uh, their, their brain chemistry to change because of these choices. And I know they need to see me be well and, and be um, having my needs met. And I'm fighting against the school and I'm fighting against often grandparents who are, you know, like there's so much of the culture that it's not aligned with our values often. And this is another place where it's usually the mother who's holding the line and the, the, it, unfortunately, a lot of times the dads are like, ah, what's the big deal? Just give them the screen, you know, not always, but that's often what's going on. Um, and so we're tracking constantly, like how much of this would be okay and not tipping into detrimental same thing with food. Like there's just so many different areas where we're trying to do it well and trying to do well by our kids, mm-hmm. trying to do by our kids. And yet it's, there's, it's so much because we don't have the support of a healthy culture. Yeah. The village isn't there. Village isn't there. And what's there in its place is, a, you know, um, a consumer goods, dependent and um obsessed culture without elders <laughs> i mean it's like it's a depressing picture yeah. uh, true truly and there are a lot of people who are not happy with the way things are and there are a lot of people who want things to be different and i'm working with these women every day and part of what excites me about my work is that i get to connect these women with each other mm-hmm. So that they can feel um, like they're they've actually found found their people. So they're not constantly trying to convince everyone in their lives of their their way of of seeing things. Um, mm-hmm. That really is a game changer when you can start to find people who are in a similar place as you, and also um, a similar and or uh, ahead of you in the journey and they can help you see, you know, what's to come and, and help you feel like, help you normalize your experience. Yeah, definitely. How did you go about creating your own village? Uh, um, <clears throat> well, the answer to that uh, would be very different depending on what life phase I'm looking at. Um, when my kids were younger, uh, a lot of our community came from the combination of family uh, and school communities. 
homeschool communities, um, the challenge was that I felt most connected to the families and the parents in alternative school communities that we couldn't really afford. And so I was, there was that um, constant dilemma of, you know, this, this school environment really matches my values and yet it's unaffordable. And so how do we, you know, so I did the, looking back on it, it's kind of mind boggling to think of how many things I did to try to make it work, you know, like cleaning classrooms and substitute teaching and, um, you know, everything I could possibly do to keep my kids in these alternative schools uh, and depleting myself in the meantime. <laughs> it's just kind of never ending. Uh, but that was a lot of where we developed community from was our, our kids' school communities. Um, and then uh, depending on where I lived, neighbors, it takes a real intentionality these days to get to know your neighbors, you know? Um, and, and then more recently for me, um, I've been divorced for seven years now and, uh, and community building at this stage of my life is really different because my kids are nearly grown or grown and nearly grown. And, I build a community. Some of my community is virtual. I have a lot of amazing women, people and women in particular in my life who I like dozens, hundreds of them um, who I have met through this work that I'm doing. And that really meets needs. It meets certain needs for me very well um, for a certain kind of conversation, quality of conversation I want to be having. And then, um, and then I, my community, I usually mostly am building around, uh, the things that I love to do. So I'm a part of a song circle, community song circle, and, um, I dance and those, so those relationships are deeply nourishing without having to, like, they're not all my best friends but they're all part of my community and my sense of belonging. And that's one thing that I think uh, we often miss is that community looks like so many different things. Mm. Like I have my, my closest uh, people who I, you know, process life with, but there's just a very small handful of those because I don't need a lot of those. I can't actually maintain a lot of those. Um, and then my adult daughters, are, who I'm very close to, that's a lot of people already. They're boyfriends. Um, and so we've already got quite a lot of people here. And then beyond that, I, I so appreciate, um, like, this isn't applicable so much anymore because my kids are older, but the people in my life who, like, uh, we carpooled with, there's this one woman in particular who, that's that was it. That's all we did is that we had this very supportive carpool relationship and we were organized about it and it was so helpful. And she's a part of my community. I don't know her well. 
Um, but I'm so grateful for the, the, the role that she played in my life as a ma- major supporting role. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we can do that for each other in a lot of different ways, but it helps um, when we've met some of our most basic needs for connection. Um, like, for example, the, the women who are in my mother worthy um, year long circles are meeting needs with each other for these, this deconstruction work and for this deeper contemplative conversation and for um, being seen and heard and uh, feeling true, truly empathized with all of those needs are getting met already so that when they go into their local community, they don't have quite as much of a sense of desperation and, and longing and urgency Mm. And they can slowly over time build community organically that it gets to be whatever it wants to be. Like whatever is meant to be, I like to think of it as like when I come into a new relationship, not asking what do I want this to be, but what does this relationship want to be? What is it meant to be? And if I put, if I'm projecting too many of my needs, unmet needs onto it, it often doesn't work or it feels frustrating or I feel a sense of rejection or whatever. Um, But I think it helps to diversify the places that we're getting our needs met in this modern culture so that we actually have a better chance of, of having more of them met. Yeah, indeed. You also have this self-paced course named Revillagers. Hmm? which you share various practical tools and mindset shifts. How, what brought you about to create a course about this? Did you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just it's almost every woman I work with is trying to figure out how to recreate the village or, or what to do in the absence of the village. Mm. Um, And so this is really my take on in the absence of the village, how do we get our needs better met? How do we better meet our children's needs? And how do we build the skills and competencies that we've lost so that it it becomes possible to meet those needs? Because one thing that I think most people can agree with is it's not like there aren't people around us we could connect with. There's we've got neighbors. Most of us have people around us. It's not like we live in the middle of nowhere. But how many different friction points are there when you think about interacting with those neighbors? We have all the stories that come up in us, the feelings that come up in us. Oh, they're probably really busy, or I'm not really sure. Uh, if I don't, th- they probably already have their community or I'm too busy or I don't want to be a burden to them or, oh, I don't think that their, you know, parenting styles are aligned or, I mean, a gazillion friction points that keep us from creating community. And there's a whole lot that we can learn about ourselves when we, you know, some of the work I was talking about earlier of understanding our coping strategies, understanding our deeper longings and needs can then help us to be able to build those skills to create the communities we want. But there's, it's a lot of inner work. Um, Yes, there are, there's the, um, 
the unfortunate uh, structure of society that does not lend itself well to um, to deep connection and to community care. But there's also the parts that we've internalized, the stories we've internalized, and that's the work that that I think um, we do have control over. Indeed. And I think this period of time is really when things are beginning to change. As you mentioned earlier, that you're noticing a shift in the younger generations, that they have a language for it, they have a different perspective. There's another awareness around mental health. I mean, back when I was young and I was observing my own mother, there was there there wasn't even awareness or language around that. And although things may look the way they look, I think now now is really when the change is being implemented. And that gives me hope. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also really excited by how many young people I see um, getting creative about their relationship design, you know, that they're not necessarily saying, okay, I need to get married and then I need to buy a home and then I need to have these children and I need to stay home. And I, you know, it's not like that, that, that I love how many people are talking about, uh, you know, the, you know, the friends that I have who are considering um, having, raising their kids with a couple of other mothers, you know? Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I just, I actually think there's a, there's so much um, progress we could make if we were moving away from these, these traditional models that are really clearly not working very well for a lot of people. Um, yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, and I'm not directly advocating for divorce and separation, but I do think that there are so many people out there who actually are doing a whole lot better family systems that are better off with the parents split and raising kids half time. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, so much more opportunity for everyone's needs to get met. And it's messy. It's, it's, you know, still culturally frowned upon in most places, but uh, I actually, if, if we can take some of the shame out of it and actually just look at the lives of the people who are doing it, I, I think generally people are, 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 if the marriage was not working, then I think we really need to be less afraid of different ways of configuring the family. I'm all for it. I was actually a teen myself and advocating to my mom that she should get a divorce because them being together was unhealthy and toxic and uh I was right <laughs> but I understand as parent that is probably the last resort the last thing that you want to do but at some point I think we have to also be responsible not only towards our children but ourselves as well and our partners and realize that you know I I don't think my perspective on life is like we all come into each other's life from whether it's a long period or short period but we're all passing by and sometimes even relationship partnerships like being in a marriage 
comes to a halt. And that's because that relationship has served its purpose, right? But I think there, as you mentioned, there's such shame around that. And also the whole notion that I've failed, right? Right. Yeah, and I, I really don't see it as a failure when a relationship ends or changes form. No. Uh, it's actually such a gift when we can. We're, I mean, we're, we we see the value in change and growth in so many other ways. Why is it that we can't change and evolve these relationships that we're clearly outgrowing or needing to to, to change in different ways? Um, yeah, and, and honestly, like if I just, and I know that this is, this is very much um, circumstantial or needs to be looked at on a case by case basis. But um, in my own situation, my ex and I were not a good fit. We tried for 18 years. It was not working. And when I finally left, um, it was tough in the beginning just because we were so bonded to like make that change. But now We've got, my kids actually have more support. My partner is supportive to my kids. My ex's new wife is supportive to my, they have like bigger community, just more people who love them and more people who care. And everybody's fine. I mean, everybody's just, just fine. I mean, that's, that's the least of everyone's problems is the fact that we got divorced. Not that it wasn't messy, but I think we've got to be less afraid of making a mess in our lives. And recognize that sometimes that's what has to happen. You make, make something messy again. It's like cleaning out a closet. You're going to make a mess first before you then have the, you know, you put things back together in an order that makes more sense and that feels better. Yeah. Death and rebirth. That's right. Yeah. Beth, it has been such a pleasure to connect with you and have this conversation. Can you please share with the audience where they can find you and what do you have going on right now? Yeah, so um, you can find me at revolutionfromhome.com, also at revolutionfromhome on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, And then I have a membership uh, community that is called Revolutionary Mothers, and that's a place where there's all kinds of things we've got going on in there. We've got support groups for different uh, stages of life and bigger challenges in the mothering journey. Um, and we have, it's really a place to come and like build those skills and, and make those connections. Um, and then my year long program is called mother worthy. The enrollment for that is once a year. And then revillagers will be coming up again, um, this, this spring. So I also have one more program that's going to be launched in January called Deconstructing Motherwell. So that'll be taking bits from my book and, um, you know, kind of elaborating and going deeper in that. So plenty, plenty going on. Beautiful. Once again, thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. The pleasure has been all mine. (laughs) 